have the book of Exodus open at the passage that we read together, Exodus 33. And as many of you know, um, was laid aside in this past week. I have to say this text that we're going to look at this morning came with great impact on my heart. And uh, in the passage that we have before us, we are led to an incredible moment, really, of when Moses meets with the Lord and engages with him and pleads with him. There's a, there's a reverent bringing of petitions and arguments to the Lord. And in the, the, the midst of this prayer, he cries out, Please, show me your glory. It's a wonderful cry, and we need to consider it this morning. But I want us really to look at the, the whole sweep of what is happening in these chapters and to give you some background to what is going on. And the people that are in view are God's covenant people. They belong to God at his appointing. And in that sense, if we're believers this morning, there is a way in which we can see ourselves here. You see, the Bible, the word of God is for all of us, and we are God's covenant people if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the position of each person here this morning, and in fact anywhere, is that they're either in Christ or they're in Adam. That is your state this morning. You're either in Christ, you know Christ, you're saved, you're right with God, or you're in Adam. Either you're saved and on that path to eternal heaven and glory, inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that doesn't fade away, or tragically you're still lost. And facing eternal condemnation and punishment. And that's why the gospel of Christ is so urgent. And impresses itself upon us. And we'll look more at that this evening. But friends, how grateful we should be. If there has been a time in our lives when we have been brought to trust the Savior for ourselves. If we have been brought to cast ourselves upon him when we've been saved. By his grace, we're, we're drawn to him and given those gifts of repentance and faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, that he died upon the cross, that our sins could be forgiven and then rose again in mighty triumph. And when we trust the Lord Jesus, we know that in that relationship we are forgiven and we belong to God. You know, whatever this life may hold for us, we know that God is the end of our journey, as one put it. We are assured in our hearts that whether good times come or, or bad times, sickness or health, whatever it may be, that he thinks on us, and that he loves us, and that we are his children, and that he will never let us go. And we have to start there, friends, because we are speaking of God's people this morning and what can happen to them. And what takes place is really something that could be a commentary upon what is happening in our own land amongst the churches. And so, if you will, just turn back a couple of chapters to Exodus 32. Now, there are lots of details in these passages, but we're just going to focus on the essentials and certain things that you need to see as we go through. And so, this is the time when Moses is called to Mount Sinai, and he goes up to meet the Lord, and there he will receive the Ten Commandments. He will receive the law. And so Moses goes up in that way. Now, whilst that is happening, the people are waiting at the foot of the mountain. And despite all they'd known of the Lord's hand and under the leadership of Moses, in that time they become very dismissive of him. You see, he was a, a long time on the mountain and people's patience, you know, can often be, be short and true religion can deteriorate very quickly. And they said, oh, well, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know where he's gone. 
You know, it's likely that he's never going to come back to us. Now, both of those things were not true. But that's what they were saying between themselves. And they were so cruel in their comments about him, especially when considering his loyalty to them, how he'd been through so many dangers and brought them under the hand of God to where they were now. But all of that was not enough. Their hearts were turning. They were looking in another direction. You know, in the recent years, we have faced seismic shifts and challenges. That's true locally and nationally and even beyond. And that's been seen in many churches and the, the challenges brought to the surface, really what was rumbling underneath. And as here in this passage, there are always those who want to push things in a different direction. Even in strong churches, always those trying to draw away from the good way and the, the, the grounded on the word of God, looking to the world. Countless means and methods, but very little to do with God and his word. And many people, what happens here, we, we find in Exodus 32, they start to get at Aaron. Because they know that Aaron is Moses' right-hand man, as it were. And sadly, Aaron is as guilty as they are. You see, they want to bring in the changes and shake things up. They want to have a bit more fun. They want more entertainment. They want more freedom. You see, they, they've been looking at the other pagan religions around them. You see, and they, they looked at the world and they looked at these pagan religions and the way they were worshipping. Oh, they were having such a good time. You know, so much to engage the passions. They're, they're dancing and performances and orgies and sexuality. And then they looked at themselves. And their worship was so regulated and so staid and so stiff and so narrow. And they were tired of Moses. You know, no doubt before long, if he ever did come back, he'd come with even more instructions. And so they prevail on Aaron. And you know, Aaron says, give me all your gold and I'll make a golden calf. But I want you to see something very important. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 32. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. I wonder if you've ever noticed that verse there before. You know, you've got all this situation going on with the golden calf, and in the midst you've got this. You see, they set in place this golden calf, but to try and play safe, he still has an altar to Jehovah there. And the next day they came, and first they sought to make peace with God, and they do their offerings and their sacrifices, they, they cover the basis, but all the time they want to get to the golden calf. They want a, a different kind, something different. Well, friend, it's not so far removed from today, is it? The things that are done and called worship done in the name of God and yet are so far from what he requires. Such a drift has taken place. Slowly but surely things are now embraced which set God's word and his ordained means to the side and those things are got rid of. Other things embraced. And you know, for all that apparent advance, have you ever asked yourself, why is it that spiritually we are at such a low ebb in this land? For all of the apparent advance and all those things that are going on, there is a dearth of true spirituality, of true experience of God, and it's truth. And this is happening while Moses is with God, and the Lord knows what's happening. He sees what is happening in the camp. Moses didn't know that shock will still await him. And as it happens, Moses, unaware, is pleading that God be patient with the people. Well, the time comes and Moses 
comes down from the mountain and as they begin to get near the camp, there is a great sound. And at first the young man with Moses thought it was the sound of battle, but it wasn't. It was the excesses of this false worldly pagan worship that the people of God were now fully engaged in. Inappropriateness and loss of control and sexualization, all the things that the world loves were found there at that moment. And you say, well, how could it happen? How could they get so far away? Doesn't take much. And the world comes sweeping in. Do you know, imagine how Moses must have felt when he came down from the presence of God and he saw the people that God had brought out of Egypt, that God had redeemed, giving themselves over to such things, all oh, the dismay and the anger and the zeal for the holiness and the glory of God. And in that moment, he threw down the tablets of stone. He threw, as it were, the law to the ground. You can understand the devastation that he must have had in his heart that they would depart from the ways of God so soon. You know, I know of ministers who have served God faithfully and battled for the truth over many years and loved the churches in which they have served. And yet, it does not take long for all that to be lost and the world embraced when they step away. It's heartbreaking. And Moses must have felt the heartbreak over the people going away from the Lord. And so put yourself in his place when he says, look at verse 26 of Exodus 32. Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. You know, it can feel like that today. We look around, is there anybody left? Who is on the Lord's side? Who will stand on these great truths? And there can be a great loneliness for the faithful servants of God. And so who is on the Lord's side? But what happens then? Well, in Exodus 33, I want you to see the great need for repentance. You see, at the beginning of Exodus 33, God says that he won't be with them. Because if he was, they'd be consumed in a moment. And there's a great distress amongst the people. They know God's displeasure, yet he would not break his word to his covenant people. And so he says, I will send an angel to guide you. Now, you might think, well, that's great. You're not an angel. You might think, oh, that's, that's wonderful. You might think the presence of the angel would be something to be thrilled about for the Israelites. But you see, the thing was this. They'd known better. They'd known more than that. You see, they'd known God with them. You know, it could be like that if we've known great blessing. And certainly true for those who've known times of a great working of God. We can rejoice in good things when they come. But if we've known better, we long for that. The Israelites had known the presence of God himself. And an angel was no substitute for that. You know, look at verse 4 of Exodus 33. When the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. You see, they realized how serious their abuse of worship had been in the sight of God. He had been clear in what he had required and they had done what pleased them, not him. They'd offended him. And there was consequences for that. Look at verses 5 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. Therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. You know, there's a lesson for us there about what true repentance actually is. You know, friends, is it not in the first instance a turning away from sin? 
from all those things that hinder a right relationship with God. You know, over the years now, there have been times when I've spoken with those who are saying that they're seeking the Lord. And there are those who have sort of expressed their shame because of their sin, even cry over their sin. They have some desire to believe, but there's no true change in their heart. There's no genuine work of the Holy Spirit of grace. You know, there's a a vast difference between sorrow and shame and embarrassment over sin and true repentance. You know, of course, there is sorrow in repentance, but it also has a, a turning away from what we are and a turning wholly to the Lord. You know, a great spiritual, realistic step takes place. It's not just emotion, it is a a spiritual understanding and a determination to turn from all that hinders God in our lives. Everything, every weight that besets us, every weight that spoils our going on with God, every barrier, every stumbling block, we set aside. Every trinket that holds us down must be cast away. That's when we know that we mean business, as it were. We get rid of the rubble in our lives. And friend, ask you, have you ever known that type of conviction? Would you not examine your own heart to see where you are with the Lord, to look and see if there's rubble in your life that needs to be got rid of by the grace of God? That's a negative side of repentance. There's a positive side too. Look at verse 7. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. That's a lovely picture. Moses had asked, who's on the Lord's side? In that terrible mess, in all that was going on, there were those who were serious about the Lord. And they take off their ornaments, they get rid of the things that hinder them in pursuing the Lord, and they follow Moses to the tabernacle of meeting outside the camp. They come away, they come outside. These are the ones who sought the Lord. It's a wonderful expression. Let me ask you this morning, are you serious? Are you serious about seeking the Lord? You know, we know him and yet we seek him. We know him and yet we desire to know more of him. You know, the lives of people who have come to a knowledge of salvation in our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ become a pilgrimage, a pursuit of the things of God. They're our chief interest. We delight in them. The things that we once despised and couldn't imagine ourselves being involved with. Suddenly we now love them. You say, well, how is that? It's the grace of God. How is it that a person immersed in the the rubbish of this world suddenly has a longing to read the Scriptures? Suddenly has a, a longing to be with the people of God. Suddenly has a longing to be in prayer, to hear the word and to read the word and to, to worship. It's all of grace. You know, the things of God become their delight. They want to honor and delight God in their lives. You know, there may be many people in churches today enjoying themselves, but they're not enjoying God. They're enjoying themselves, but they're not enjoying God. There is one way and it is a godly way and an honorable way and a pure way and a biblical way and a spiritual way. God is in our sight. And these verses show us a people who threw away all that hindered them. They were ashamed and they sought the Lord. They longed for the Lord who is on the Lord's side. And ask the question, who is on the Lord's side? 
in these desperate days in which we are living. Those who are serious, they went and identified themselves with Moses to seek the Lord. What of you? What of me? Which group do we fall into? To seek and pursue the good things calls for courage and determination and resoluteness. And that is what we find with these people, the path to repentance. But then I want you to see in Exodus 33, verses 11 onwards, see this great prayer of Moses. You see, in the New Covenant era, which is where we are, we have the completed Scripture, the fullness of the Gospel. But in the Old Testament, you know, there were these more physical manifestations to show the presence of God. And so when Moses went into the tabernacle, into the presence of God, a cloudy pillar would descend. And Moses would meet with God and there would be this interaction, this conversation, this fellowship, this prayer. It's remarkable. And you always find it amazing, really. You think of Moses. Moses known as the meekest man, the humblest man, reserved. He didn't want to push himself, and yet God chose him to be his servant. You know, even then, Moses needed Aaron to, to make speeches for him to the people, to help him. But when it came to this great relationship with God, he knew how to talk with God and to speak boldly without being blasphemous. Look at verse 12. Moses says, see, you, you say to me, bring up this people but you've not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. You see, he starts with the basics. He says, Lord, he said, you told me to bring this people, but you've not told me how to do it. But you have told me that I belong to you, that I'm your child, a child of the covenant. Do you know, it's wonderful when you hear the Lord's people coming to the Lord as his covenant people as a forgiven people, and presenting their pleadings and their petitions. But it has to begin with an understanding of who we are, our identity in Christ by grace, the people of God who belong to him. And we get his attention when we call to him like that, I am your child. I found grace in your sight. And then we're in that place to commune with him. And look at verse 13. He says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you. You know, after all the appalling happenings around the golden calf, how could Moses get back on the narrow way? How could he bring the people back? How could they be rescued so as to honor the Lord? And he goes on, Consider that this nation is your people. Notice the steps. He says, I am your child. I have found grace in your sight. I'm praying for these people. They are your people. You've committed yourself to them. They belong to you. You've made promises to them. And then in verse 14, the Lord responds. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. There is nothing as precious as the presence of God. It's an amazing thing when we can say after a service, we knew the presence of God. Do you know, of course, God is always present, but it is knowing degrees of his presence. We don't always think like that as we should. You know, when we come out to the prayer meeting, it's not how many prayed, it's not how many were there, but to what degree was the presence of God known? Do we think in those terms and not just in the prayer meeting, you know? Are we reaching the throne? Are we prevailing in prayer? Are we wrestling with the Lord and not letting him go until he blesses us? 
I remember listening to uh, two gospel ministers, Derek Swan and Graham Harrison, and uh, they spoke of prayer meetings that they had known earlier in their ministries when they were just beginning in the sort of 60s and 70s. And they spoke of times when they knelt to pray with other gospel ministers at a time when God was really at work. And though it felt like they'd only been praying moments, hours had passed. Such was the sense of the presence of God and that engagement with him. And I can remember hearing them and others like them, like Vernon Hyam and different ones, hearing them pray. And you know, how you feel like a spiritual midget as they engaged with the Lord. They knew him. And just with Moses, Moses answers in a staggering way, verse 15. He says, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't bring us up from here, Lord. You see, knowing God's presence was the minimum requirement of Moses. He says, that's what identifies us from other people. The fact that you're with us. The fact that you're here, that we are your people. That's what he says in verse 16. How then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people upon the face of the earth. You see the heart of this man, the spiritual Aryan dimension this man in, is in. He, he cares for the people. He loves God. He loves his cause. He, he's willing to be blotted out himself. But he longs above all that God would be with them, that his presence would be known. Paul was exactly the same. And he said, you know, I'd do anything for the Lord's people that they might glorify and honor him. And you know, verse 17, we see that God graciously grants the request of Moses. It's wonderful that God in his kindness grants this request. But Moses has not yet finished. There is more on his heart. And that's what he says in verse 18. Oh, please, show me your glory. And friends, we need to understand that's not just for his own personal benefit and personal blessing. This is something that is there for a wider blessing and the reality of the glory of God. And God kindly says that as his glory passes by, he will hide Moses in the cleft of the rock, cover him with his hand, allowing him to see the back of the glory. You see, what Moses is asking for is more of God himself. Because he cannot be satisfied with an angel or anything else. And that's Moses' plea, and that's what our aim should be today, to long for and to pursue God himself. And the heartbreaking thing is, we just don't long for him like we should to know his nearness, to be overwhelmed with him. So much of the thinking today is, how can we bring God down a little and bring people up a little and try and get them to meet somewhere in the middle to adapt God down into our age? Friend, we need to set all that aside because what we need above all is him. He still has his people and we have a great God. I've been thinking much and gathering thoughts concerning dear Howell, previous pastor here, Hal Roberts. And I'm so thankful, really, in the fact that it was through him that I was introduced to, you know, much of the rich things that still impact me today. Not less, least men of deep faith and experience have mentioned some of their names already, Graham Harrison and Derek Swan and Vernon Hyam and Howell himself, 
old friends, of course, of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. It's interesting, all of them spoke of this illustration which I want to share with you. And uh, Mr. Hyam once said that the only thing that he ever disagreed with Dr. Lloyd-Jones on was who was the greatest preacher. Lloyd-Jones always said that it was a man called Daniel Rowland. He was the greatest. Whereas Mr. Hyam said it was another man called John Elias. Both of them were remarkable men used of God in Wales in great movements of God in the 18th and 19th century. But Daniel Rowland was known as a, a fierce preacher of judgment and wrath before a rebuke came to him that saw a, a slight change in his ministry that would have a more balanced emphasis on the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Now, he was based in a little place called Flangaitha, and it was a hamlet of around 100 or so people. But you know, God so worked there that as he stood to preach, his congregation would be in the thousands. And at times, upwards of 10,000 people would walk for miles to come and hear the preaching of the Word of God. He was one of the key men in establishing the Welsh Calvinistic Methodist. God used him mightily. Now, around 100 years after the Lord had taken Daniel Rowland home to glory, the Calvinistic Methodists of Wales, they carried on and they had this general assembly and it was being held in Hlangaitha. And the spiritual fervor of things had, had really dropped off a cliff. It was such a significant difference between the days of Roland and then. And these men, they shared with me this account. So along the following lines, the, the chairman of this assembly that was gathering together, he was a, a really nervous elder. And he had been given the task of trying to find the words to address the gathering of all these delegates and ministers from the 36 presbyteries of Wales, the four in England. And he was having a terrible time. He just didn't know what he was going to say. And he had this burden on his heart and, you know, that, that text, oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. It was on his heart. And the day before, he was, he was praying for God to be at work, for the presence to be known. Well, the night before the opening meeting, he had been praying. And as he, he went to his bed, a number of things came to his mind. And it was all, as though all the delegates were present there at the assembly. But there was no delegate from heaven. He knew that there was orthodoxy but things were dead there was no real knowing of God and it was as though he was crying out that that God would send a delegate from heaven as it were and the man felt that the answer came in the night great conviction no he will not send a delegate to the assembly but tell them he is coming himself and when the morning came and the meeting began this little nervous elder he got up and he shared this text that was on his heart. And he told them what had happened. And as he recounted it all to them, and he said those words, he himself is coming. It happened. The presence of God was felt in that meeting. And there was great repenting and weeping. And the preaching of the word went on for hours and hours as the Spirit of God moved and taught this truth and inspired and inflamed the people. God was present in the midst. Our greatest need today, my dear friends, is not methods trying to please everybody. Our need is God himself. And I wonder if in your heart, if you really believe that, or that God himself will come into the midst of his people, the one whose arm is not shortened 
that he cannot save, who is mighty to save. You know, when God works, when God refreshes his church, our prayer is, show us your glory. Don't send us an angel or any of these other things that people seem so taken up with. Oh, Lord, come yourself. That's our cry. Come yourself. And then as we finish, the power of God. I want you to turn, if you will, to Exodus 34 and verses 10 to 14. You see, when the people returned to the Lord, you know, God renewed his covenant with them. And if you look at verse 10 of Exodus 34, Behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And so God promises to be with them, to do awesome things, to drive out their enemies when they follow in his ways and worship him alone and aright. In fact, in verse 14, it says, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God says they mustn't have anything that compromises or challenges him. God is saying, I'm God. I'm the source of all light and being. I'm your hope. I won't tolerate competition from any other little idol in your lives. Get rid of them all. Worship only me. Friends, are you serious about pursuing God? You know, whether he comes in great power or not is his prerogative. It's up to him. But do we long for God? Is that our starting point? Do we desire him? Is our heart that he would show us something of his glory? Do we cry out with Isaiah, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down? Do you know, when you consider that petition, what is Isaiah saying? He's saying, oh God, we are in such a condition of need and we are today. The church is barren and dead and powerless. Oh God, take hold of the heavens, as it were, with both hands and rend it apart and come down upon us. Pour upon us this power from above. It's not something man can do or engineer. It is God's sovereign doing, the presence and power of God known and felt. It's a great tragedy today in our situation that we don't know that. And so often we don't even long to know it. You say, well, what does it look like? Well, that's amazing, really, because in Isaiah 64, which is where that cry comes from, oh, that we would rend the heavens, we're actually told. Isaiah 64, too, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. When God comes down to a people, how do you know? What do people do when God comes in this sense? The proof that God has come into a place like this. Well, it's not the excesses that some say. It's this, that the nations may tremble at your presence. There's a sense of awe. There's an awareness of sublime power at work. You know, it's always true. You look from Acts 2 onwards. Every great work of God done since. People forget where they are. They're aware of eternity. And the reality of the gospel you know, they're, they're not running out of the door to get on to the next thing, to get back into the world. They're aware of God. And they tremble before him and worship him. And when a heart is filled with the glory and greatness of God, everything else is put into the right perspective. The expulsive power of a new affection. The question is, are you pursuing him? Are you longing for him? 
And the present darkness only serves to make the Lord in his work even more glorious when he either comes in power to awaken and bless or when he comes again in great glory to draw this present evil age to its end. And all the while our heart cry should be, please, Lord, show us your glory. Let us know more of yourself. Let us know more of your presence in the midst to feel thy power, to hear thy voice, to taste thy love. Be all my choice. Is that your heart's desire? Do you long for God like that? So often we can feel as though we're just dipping our toes in the water, as it were. How we should pray that in this day, in this age, that God would lead us on further, that we might be taken up with his glory, the wonder of Christ, the salvation in him, and that we would indeed bow in awe and reverence and adoration before him, because he is here. May it be, dear friends, may it be, and may it be the cry of our hearts. Amen.